Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson takes us through Joshua 7. The allure of the lore is real, but it carries with it a hook. This message deals with how to avoid succumbing to the lore lore and what to do if you have. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We are continuing in our journey with Joshua into the promised land. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 7 this morning. And the title of the message is The Lure Allure. The Lure Allure. Now, lure is a fishing device. And let me just say right up front, I have no idea what I'm talking about right now. I don't fish. I didn't grow up fishing. I've fished less than a handful of times in my entire life. Some of you people are already out there making fun of me in your minds. That's okay. That's just the way it is. So I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I'm going to talk about it in a moment anyway. Some of you know this story. My um, Denise's grandmother and grandfather owned a lake lot at Possum Kingdom, and they were avid fishermen. They loved to fish. When we were dating and early in our marriage, we would go down there and hang out with them. And so they would ask me, Daryl, do you fish? And especially Mrs. Jenny, she was the worst. Do you fish? No, ma'am, I don't. Do you want to learn to fish? No, ma'am, I don't. <laughs> Do you want to go out and fish with us? No, ma'am, I don't. Well, she couldn't believe that. She couldn't understand that. Kind of put me on her blacklist. I had to do a lot of kind of brownie points to get kind of back in her favor. But once I had boys, I took them down there to Possum Kingdom. And one particular time, it was just Mrs. Jennings, Mr. Jennings, and our family. We go down to the dock. They're both really little. And so she asked me again. She said, have you started fishing? No, ma'am, I haven't. I said, have you taught your boys how to fish? <laughs> No, ma'am, I haven't. <laughs> she ripped me, literally said, what kind of father doesn't teach her sons how to fish? That's how avid she was. Now, she was joking, but she was serious. <laughs> anyway, I'm saying all that simply to say, I don't fish. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I'm going to talk about it anyway. Lures. Okay, a lure is simply a fishing device. And here's the Wikipedia definition, if you want to know it. It's a type of artificial fishing bait which is designed to attract a fish's attention. So it uses vibration and movement and flash and color to, to get the attention and lure this fish in. Most of the hooks, I mean, most of the uh, lures have hooks. Some of them don't. They're caught a different way, but most of them have a hook. So here's the catch with the lure. The reason the fish comes to the lure is because of the allure. In other words, they're attracted to it because it offers an attraction to it. But the bad news is, when you bite the lure, you also get the hook. In other words, something that looks really good can become painful, even deadly, very quickly. What we're gonna look at here as we continue this journey with Joshua is a man who became captive to the lure, a lure. He succumbed to the lure, allure. Let's actually look in chapter six. We need to kind of set the context and the stage. Last week we dealt with Jericho and this was part of the story that we didn't touch on. But verse 17, as God's telling them how to deal with the city, he says the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Now that word devoted means to be irrevocably given over to the Lord. The irrevocable giving over of things to the Lord, usually in complete destruction. 
but it was to be given over to the Lord. So everything's to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Verse 21, they devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Verse 24, then they burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. So here's the deal. God tells them, don't take anything. Everything is devoted to me and to be given to me. And if you take anything from this battle, you're opening up your camp for trouble and destruction. That leads us to chapter seven, verse one. My translation says, but. Now that word's always a transition. Sometimes it's from a bad transition to a good. In this case, it's something good to a bad. They just defeated Jericho. It says, but the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So what we see here is that he falls prey to the lure lure. What did he take? Well, we see that in verse 20. Verse 21, he took a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. So Achan sees this that is attractive, is appealing, applies to his greed, it's worth money, it's expensive. He, he sees this and so he actively disobeys what God says and he partakes. In other words, he succumbs to the lure allure. Now this story presents and reveals something that every one of us face all the time. And that's the decision, will we yield to the flesh or will, will we yield to the spirit? Will we pursue the things of this world or will we pursue the things of God? Do the things of this world have a greater allure and attraction and appeal to us than do the things of God and the things of the spirit? What's interesting with Achan is he knew exactly what God said. He knew God said, these are devoted, don't take them, and he did it anyway. Why? Because he succumbs to the lure, allure. Now in scripture, we see a lot of examples of the lure, allure. In Genesis 13, we see what I call the lure of the forbidden fruit. Remember Eve, she sees this fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She knew God said, don't partake of it, but the scripture says it looked pleasing and good for food, so she partook. So she got to enjoy the fruit, but she experienced the hook at the same time. Genesis 13, what I call the lure of the fertile fields. Remember, Lot and Abraham are together. The land cannot accommodate all of them, so they separate. Lot chooses the, the fertile fields, the plush. The reason is because of the beauty and the attraction. We know his story ends up in Sodom, and so he experiences the fruit, but he also experiences the hook. Genesis 25, there's what I call the lure of fleshly fervor. Remember the story of Esau. He gives up his birthright for some food because he's hungry. So he releases his spiritual inheritance for some momentary pleasure. 
So he experiences the food, he experiences the nourishment, but he still gets the lure. Here's the deal with the lure. The lure, allure is real. What the world has to offer is attractive. There is a luring dynamic, and we all have this innate craving for the lure, for the world. 1 John 2.16 says, for everything in the world, the cravings of the sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. So here's the deal. We talk about the lure, lure, it's real. The world is attractive. It offers things that are appealing and attractive. It feeds this innate nature of, of greed and lust and pride and ambition and some of these other emotions. And so that's what draws us in. The only problem is it's got the hook. We have to beware of the lure, lure because it comes with the hook as well. So here's what we're seeing in this story. Achan bites he succumbs to the lure, lure. Let's see what happens as a result. Pick up the story, verse two. It says, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the people will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. The context, they had just defeated this great walled city of Jericho. <clears throat> Jericho. They have just seen God do this miraculous event. And now they go to this no-name JV squad of soldiers and they just get routed. They get annihilated and demolished. On top of that, now these people who were beginning to get some courage, now their hearts are melting in fear. Why? Because of Achan who succumbed to the lure of lure. Now this story has some principles for us this morning. So I wanna share four principles with this story. And I wanna say just right off the bat, this is a difficult story. This is a sobering story. These principles are sobering and difficult. There's some principles that really, our, our, our nation doesn't really wanna hear, but they're in, the, they're in the text. So let's take a look at it. Here's the first principle. That is to God, no means no. When it comes to God, when he says no, he means no. When he says don't do that, he really means don't do that. Look in verse 11. This is God speaking to Joshua. He says, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen, they have lied, and they have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. I think we all know these parents, and if we're all honest with ourselves, we've all been this parent multiple times as we were raising our children. But it's the scenario of our child is, is the child is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. So the parent says, hey, don't do that. Stop that. 
Well, they don't listen. They just keep doing it. And so the parent says again, hey, stop that. Don't do that. The child just ignores, keeps doing it. So you go over and over. Finally, they ramp it up a little bit and they say, hey, if you don't stop that, you're going to get a spanking. If you don't stop that, we're going to put you in timeout. But they ignore it and they just kind of keep doing it. So you see this scenario which is over and over, warning after warning after warning, and the parent never follows through with the consequence. Well, the child knows that the parent's not ever going to follow through with the consequence. So they just keep doing whatever they're doing. It's easy for us as the children of God to get the same mentality. And we think when God says don't, he's not going to follow through. So we just keep doing it. And God gives us warning through his word. He gives us warning through his spirit. Don't or stop or don't do this. And we just think we have this mentality He's not going to follow through. So we just keep doing that. We keep living in that disobedience or in that rebellion. This first principle tells us that when God says no, he means no. Now, what happened as a result of their disobedience? Verse 12 tells us the main thing for the Israelites is they experienced a defeated life. Verse 12 says, You cannot stand against their enemy. In other words, the Israelites now do not have the ability to stand against the enemy of A. When they should be advancing against their enemy, they're now running from their enemy. Have you ever felt like that in your life? If there's something going on, we've got the spiritual enemy that we've talked about. We ought to be advancing against the enemy, taking ground from the enemy, but often we find ourselves resisting and running from the enemy. That's what's taking place here. And finally, in verse 12, he says, I'm not going to be with you anymore until you deal with this. In other words, God's saying, if you want my presence, if you want my power, you have to deal with this. Now, let me put a footnote here. God deals with us differently now in the New Testament than he did back then. As a follower of Christ, as a believer in Christ, you never have to worry about God leaving you and deserting you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, that is secure. We get the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And when we receive Christ, we know that we have eternal life because we have the Son of God. So he's not ever going to leave you. He's never going to be unsaved. Christ is never going to forsake you. So it's different. We don't have to worry about God's presence and power leaving us. But there's still a principle here that applies, and that's utilizing and accessing and experiencing the presence and the power of God. When we live in this disobedience and rebellion, that's what we begin to lose. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That means to sadden the heart of God. And the fact that he says don't means we can 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Some translations say, do not quench the Spirit. Put out the Spirit's fire. In other words, we can put out the Spirit's fire. It's kind of the picture I like in my head is it should be like a pipe. that The water can flow through this pipe and it's designed to flow. But when you get a clog in the pipe, it stops the flow. That's what it's like when we are grieving and when we quench the Spirit of God in our life. Instead of the Spirit of God being able to flow freely through us out, that deal becomes a clog and it stops the flow of the presence and the power and the working of the Spirit in our life. God knows that. God knows when we're involved in this thing over here, the reason he's saying don't do that is he knows the outcome of that. So he backs up here and he's trying to get us to stop so we don't have to experience 
What's gonna happen? Because when God says no, he means no, there's gonna be a consequence. He does not want us to experience the consequence, so he comes with his spirit and he says, hey, let's, let's take care of this. That leads to a second principle. And that's, it's not God's fault. Your situation isn't God's fault. More specifically, this situation for Joshua and the Israelites is not God's fault. Look in verse six. They've just experienced the defeat from this little town. And it says that Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Here's what Joshua is doing. He's going before the Lord and he's saying, God, why did you do this? Why did you create this defeat? He sounds just like the children of Israel did when they left Exodus. Remember that? They're in between the Red Sea and the children and the army of, of, of Egypt. And they cry out, why did you bring us here to die later in the wilderness with the man? Why did you bring us here to die? Now, Joshua's doing the same thing. God, why did you cause this? What God's saying is, I didn't cause this. You did because of the lure lure. There's a principle for us here. Sometimes we do experience the consequence of our sin. Sometimes our pain, our misfortune, our negative situation, our unfortunate circumstance is a result of our sin. It's a consequence of us walking in that disobedience and that rebellion against God. Joshua and the army were defeated, not because God did something, but because Achan had done something. And that applies here to us. That leads me to the third principle. I told you it gets pretty heavy here for a minute. Here's the third principle. And that is that sin is serious. Sin really is serious. Look in verse 24. So you know the context through several of these verses preceding, Joshua goes through a system of discovering who committed this sin. So they go tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, person by person, and they finally discover that Achan is the one that committed the sin and took the devoted items. So it says in verse 24, then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys, and sheep, his tent, and everything that he had to the valley of Acre. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. <laughs> Achan learned that sin was serious. It's easy for us today to believe and to think that sin's not serious. And the reason is, I think one reason is, <clears throat> is because... We don't die immediately after we sin like they did. There are many examples in scripture when someone would sin that they would drop dead on the spot. And you talk about awakening the, the rest of the people, the rest of the congregation, the rest of Israel to say, I better not do that because if I do that, I'm gonna fall dead just like he did. So it created this seriousness of sin in their context. Today, that doesn't happen. 
when we sin, God deals with us differently. So we don't experience immediate consequence often when we live in this sin and rebellion so we can get stuck in our head. Sin must not really be that big a deal. If sin really was a big deal, God would be doing something. I would be experiencing some consequences, but I'm not experiencing that yet. So it's not really a big deal. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm so grateful that God doesn't deal with us that way today. I'd have been dead 50 years ago. I'm thankful for the grace of God. I'm thankful for the mercy of God. I'm thankful for the blood of Christ. I'm thankful that he has removed that sin and he has covered that sin. I don't have to pay the ultimate price for my sin because Christ paid for it on the cross. I am so grateful for that. But that does not negate the grace of God and the blood of Christ does not negate the seriousness of sin and what it can do and devastate in our life and in our spiritual walk and in that context. Because sin still grieves the Holy Spirit. Sin can still quench the Holy Spirit. Sin can still ruin my testimony. Sin can still rob from me my peace and my joy and my power and the fruit that I can experience in an abundant walk with Christ. Sin is still serious. Even though we don't drop dead, don't be fooled to think that it's okay because it's serious. Which leads me to the fourth principle. And that's sin creates ripples. Sin creates ripples. We see here in this context, verse one, because of Achan's sin, verse one, it said the Lord's anger burned against all of Israel. The entire people suffered. Verse four, 3,000 men were routed in battle. Verse five, 36 men died in battle. So 36 men lost their life because of what Achan did. Verse five also says that the hearts of the people melted. Verses 24 and 25, all of Achan's family were stoned and burned. There was a ripple effect. When Achan took the devoted things and rebelled against God, it did not just affect Achan. It affected everybody else. The same happens with us. When I live in rebellion against God, when I live with harboring sin in my life, that does not just affect me. That affects my wife, my sons, extended family, friends. It, it has a ripple effect that just goes through. We can, we can look at our nation and see how we have become accustomed to sin and how it's affecting our nation. Sin has a ripple effect that we want to try to stop. So here's the question. What caused all the trouble and the defeat of the people of Israel? It was Achan succumbing to the lure, allure. So what does that look like? Look in verse 20. Here's the lure, lure. Here's the essence of the lure, lure right here. Verse 20. Achan replied, this is after he's been found out. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. And this is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, here it is, I coveted them, I took them, and I hid them in the ground inside my tent. He says, I coveted them, I took them, and I hid them. That is the lure allure. And there's a progression that I want you to see on this lure allure. 
The progression starts with what I call desire. In other words, he saw and he coveted. He saw those things. And the first step in the lure, lure is a desire. We see something that we want. We see something that appeals to our flesh, to our nature, and we want it. The second step, then, it leads to disobedience. He took it. Remember, Achan knew what God had said. Achan didn't make a misstep. He didn't do something he didn't know he wasn't supposed to do. He had a clear word from God, don't take this, and he did it anyway. It was an act of disobedience. For us, the lure, lure is we know God has said some things in his word, in his spirit. No, don't do that. And so it's an act of disobedience. We're not talking about how we misstep at times or, you know, we fall at times. That's not what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about this morning is is a specific act of disobedience. I know God is saying don't, but I'm going to do it anyway. That leads then to defiance. It says he went and hid it. Why did Achan hide all that stuff? Well, he knew he wasn't supposed to take it. He didn't want anybody else to know that he took it, so he had to go hide it. And we do the same thing. When we're living in that type of rebellion as well, we hide it. We don't want anybody to know we're doing that. We don't want anyone to, to know that we're living that way. That's why we do it in private. That's why we do it in the dark. That's why we do it alone. That's why we don't share that with anybody because we hide it. And that ultimately then leads to destruction in Achan's life. That is the progression of the lure allure. We desire it. We become defiant. So we say, I don't care what God says. I'm doing it anyway. And then that leads to to defiance. What do we do? What do we do if we find ourselves somewhere in that progression? Well, we do exactly what the children of Israel did. What God told them to do in verse 13. God tells them, go consecrate the people Tell them, consecrate yourselves. We dealt with this a few weeks ago. Go consecrate yourself. We learned that consecration is about separation and preparation. It's separating ourselves from sin, separating ourselves to God. It's spiritual purification. It's turning our hearts back toward God. That's what God called the people of Israel to do. Because of this sin, separate yourself from that sin, renew your commitment to the Lord, turn your heart back toward God. And that's exactly what we do today if we find ourselves succumbing to the lure, lure. When God's spirit pricks us and says, hey, you're in the middle of the disobedience, wherever you are in the progression, what we do at that point is confess. God, I'm sorry that I've done this. Father, please cleanse me. Forgive me of that. Father, I want to turn my heart back towards you. I want to renew my heart and my mind so that the things of God are more appealing, more attractive, more alluring to me than the things of the world. Father, I got caught in it. You just confessed. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We don't have to end in destruction. The story doesn't have to end in destruction. It can end in confession where we're renewed and restored and we're brought back into that abundance and that fruitfulness and that effectiveness and that power and that joy and the peace, everything that God has to offer for us. But I don't want to end here. I want to end with what I call the rest of the story. It's the best part of the story. It's really the great part of the story because everything we've talked about so far, I don't know about you, but it's been, it's been heavy. I can feel it. <laughs> I mean, this is heavy. This is weighty. This is sobering. But this is the best part of the story. Look what happens in chapter 8, verse 1. 
They consecrated themselves. They did what God told them. So it says then in verse eight, then, in other words, because of what they did, then the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Take the whole army with you and go up and attack A. For I have delivered into your hands the king of A, his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to A and its king as you did to Jericho and its king, except that you may carry off their plunder and livestock for yourself. What a great story. Because they consecrate themselves, what does God do? He restores this sense of victory and power. They were being defeated by the enemy. They were running from the enemy. They were giving ground to the enemy. But now it's reversed. Now they're advancing against the enemy. They're conquering the enemy and they're living in power. The same thing happens for us when we deal with that consecration. We confess that. We get off of that progression. God restores that sense, that flow of the spirit where we experience the fruitfulness of Christ. But and, it says, here's a bonus. You get to keep the plunder this time. You didn't get to keep it in Jericho, but you get to keep everything this time. It's a double blessing. That's what God does for us when we turn our heart back toward him if we've been caught in that lure. We get to experience abundance of his mercy and his grace. Here's the story. Here's the reality. Here would be my encouragement to you this morning. If you're not in the lure allure, don't get in the lure allure. Don't be allured by the lure. Again, I'm not a fisherman, okay? So this may be the dumbest thing you've ever heard. I don't know. But when you fish, I hear a lot of people say, they're just not biting. You may sit there for hours, you don't catch anything. To me, There's got to be a lot of fish down there that see the lure and say, nope, not biting that. My buddy did that and I saw what happened to him. (laughs) There's got to be a lot of fish that see the lure, but they don't bite it. We've got to be the same way, spiritually. When we see the lure, when we see the allure of this world and the things that this world has to offer, we have to be spiritual enough, sensitive enough, in the spirit enough to say, that's of the world, that's not of God, I'm not biting. The second, if this morning you find yourself in the midst of the lure, lure, you have bitten and you're experiencing that trauma and that trouble now, the great news is all you have to do is come before the Lord and just confess it. Say, God, I'm, I'm sorry. I bit and I'm sorry. Cleanse me. I'm turning my heart back toward you and I'm asking for your spirit and your power to keep me from biting again. And God will do it. The story can end great. Let's pray together. Take a moment, let the Spirit speak to you. I know this was a heavy word this morning. But if you're here this morning and the Spirit of God is pricking your heart and telling you, you are in the lure, lure. You have bitten. You're in the midst of this right now. If that's you, 
do not leave this morning without dealing with that. Let God cleanse you from that. It's okay, we all bite, we've all bitten. There's no shame in that, there's no embarrassment in that. It's simply don't stay there. Let God cleanse you. We have a prayer team out here, we'd love to pray with you if you would like to pray with somebody about that. Father, I just pray now for anyone who finds themselves in the midst of the Lord. Father, would you free them from that today? Would you turn their hearts back toward you? And Father, I pray you'd give every one of us spiritual discernment and strength to know when the enemy is throwing the lure out. Give us the wisdom and the power to reject it, to not receive that, to desire you more than those momentary experiences of euphoria that the world has to offer. Because your joy and your peace and your love is eternal. It's not temporary. So Father, may we crave that. May you continue to speak. May your spirit move in us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. To learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, or to hear more messages, go to rfamarillo.org. Thanks. Have a great week.